Well, good morning, everyone. It is, again, good to see you. I hope your hearts have been super encouraged this morning. Uh, if not, wake them up, because so, I don't know how you can't be encouraged by the stories that you've heard and uh, the things that are before us. Uh, one of the things I just want to do before, uh, and I'll mention it at the end of the service, but I hope you'll join us afterwards. We have a great opportunity to hear how God's grace has worked in all kinds of different ministries and have a meal prepared. Uh, we'll, I'll come up at the end of the service and pray for that, but I hope that you'll take uh, some opportunity and join us for that, whether you're uh, a firm covenant community here or a member here or not. We'd love to have you just come and hang out and hear about the good things. It's not a business meeting, so it's an annual celebration of God's working in our midst and hope that you will uh, avail yourself of that. Before we step into the text, I'm going to invite you to just bow with me in a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we're reminded this morning, even through the baptisms, of the magnificent glory of your grace and mercy towards lost humanity. Father, we are stuck, as Romans would tell us, we are weak and helpless, we are ungodly, we are, in fact, the word tells us we're enemies of you apart from the saving work of Christ. We thank you for the opportunity to celebrate that in such a special way this morning as we hear people uh, giving glory to you by talking about your grace and how it has worked in their life. Thank you for this opportunity to continue to step into your word and pray that you would stir our hearts to truly struggle with the, the challenges of your word and what it calls us to be and do. Father, we would ask that this would be the furthest thing from an intellectual exercise, but that you would allow your spirit to speak into the deep recesses of our own heart and mind and not to meditate, but Father, to reshape our beliefs and our values and our priorities so that we will live according to your word. Thanks for this opportunity this morning. We entrust it to you and we give you thanks for this opportunity. May your spirit continue to be our teacher and we thank you in Christ's name, amen. Well, this is part of the year where we celebrate Martin Luther King and his great I Have a Dream speech. It is really the clarion call of that time, and obviously it continues to reverberate down through the ages, of the reality of equality for all people. Um, we still have a few things to learn. We haven't quite figured it out, and we're still working on that process, and as we step into the scriptures this morning, we are still back in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, although we'll be in chapter 3 today, to look in some respects of how the fall affected uh, this whole issue of what we're talking about in terms of equality. It's a difficult task because there's a lot of things that are unspoken. I've already presented to you some things that I think traditionally we think about Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 7 that uh, I just think we need to think about them differently to understand the real ebb and flow of what's taking place in that particular context. This morning we want to take a look at, uh, in a sense, the lump sum of the rest of Genesis. There's a number of um, verses that we could track through, but just so you have a frame of reference, we're really picking up on verse 8 and working our way through basically to verse 21. Now, you, if you know me, you know that's impossible. Uh, we're never going to get all that, so we're going to skip around and, and deal with the highlights because the issue here is what is what did equality look like before the fall and what does it look like afterwards? Some people would say Adam and Eve were completely equal in everything. Uh, part of that is that God commissioned them to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth, and to exercise dominion over the beasts. And so on that basis, people say, well, they had exactly the same responsibility. Well, to me, I, I look at that and say they had the same mission, 
but they had different responsibilities within that mission, and God created Eve to be a helper to Adam to accomplish that. Probably the most obvious illustration of that is the idea of being fruitful and multiply. They have very distinct roles, they have different responsibilities in that, and they, you just don't decide to switch it out. I mean, obviously God created them that way, but clearly it demonstrates that you can have very different roles on the same mission, and one is not demeaning to the other. They're equally valuable and intricate to fulfilling what's going on. So as we step into this text, we have the Lord God uh, walking in the midst of the garden, and in the, in the midst of all this, he calls out to Adam. And he begins to explore this process, and he begins to say, um, and call out to him because he wants to know where he is. Not that God in his sovereignty doesn't know, but he's trying to call them to himself. So it says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he, being Adam, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself, he said. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I have commanded you to eat? Now let me pause there for a moment because one of the greatest struggles that we have is dealing with the shame of sin. It's probably the best word to describe the struggle, that they were afraid of God, the one who had created them and and that they fellowship with, and now the very thing that they desperately needed is the thing that they were running from. Uh, By the way, there's, there's a lot we could talk about here, but the, the very power of what they needed right now was the very power they were running away from. They didn't got, need God to do a great creative miracle. What they needed was the power of his personal presence. And that's the very thing that they fled from and we've been running from him ever since. You, we know that in our own hearts that when we sin, the last person we wanna see is God. The last person we wanna see is, is our loved one. So we have mastered the ability to hide our sin. And what's interesting about this is that as God doesn't run from them. God doesn't come out with a hammer and say, all right, you're done, boom. God's gonna allow them to face the consequences of their own choices, and what's intriguing here is that God calls out to sinners and he draws near to them. Now, in modern Christianity, especially in America, we like to pass judgment on those who sin. Most people who sin know they sin. Now, there are people who harden their hearts to the realities, even Christians, to the morality of what God does, and we can all know that we justify our own behavior even when we know it's wrong. But in the, in the depths of our heart, we know when we sin, and yet God doesn't run from us. We may run from him, but God moves closer to them, and he wants to show his compassions uh, towards sinners, and he's relentless at it. In fact, we can't forget in this journey where they make this huge catastrophic failure is that God's commitment towards sinners is that he doesn't let them go. We have friends that will let us go. We have people that will abandon us. We have other individuals, but in the family of God, we should learn to act like God. Is that when people sin, we need to draw near with our presence so they, they might discover the same things that Adam and Eve did, and that is his compassion and his mercy God didn't give them a big lecture. He said, like, what have you done? Because he wants them to own their responsibility and the choices they've made. But it's critically important for us to realize that God isn't afraid of us, even when we're afraid of him. 
One of the greatest marks of who God is is that he takes, he draws near to people who are broken and sinners, and no matter how catastrophic their sin, God knows that it's his personal presence is the healing presence of his power that we desperately need. Now, having said that, I want you to also notice that God challenges all the sin. If you walk through this, and the reason I'm posturing it this way is because there's a certain written genre here that you find in Hebrews, and it goes to the issue of how do we understand equality. But I want you to notice that there's kind of a a sequence here. God calls to Adam. Adam blames Eve. By the way, my personal conviction is I'm not even sure that Adam knew about the serpent till this point. And the reason for that is that I think if he had any integrity at all, he would go, listen, this slithering serpent went and sucked us in. I think he would have done something to, to move alongside Eve and say, she's my helper that you gave me, but he doesn't do that. Of course, we don't do that either, but I, I think he may not even have known about the serpent. Now, that's just speculation. I don't care if you believe it or not. It's just my conviction about this. But the idea here is that he blames Eve. Eve turns around and goes, uh, it was that serpent dude. <laughs> I could see Adam going like, who? Like, who have you been talking to? Like, what's going on? And so it, it goes kind of A, B, and C, and then the Lord God steps in as you follow through the text, and he speaks first uh, to the serpent and curses him. And we'll just briefly look at some of those pieces just so we have continuity in the text. And then he turns his thoughts to Eve, and he deals with her and what her choices were, and then finishes up with Adam and, and talks about the crucible that he's going to have to go through, as in, in many ways, and how they fit it together. Now the argument here is that God approached the man and addressed him for the first, uh, addressed him first because he was the responsible party uh, between Adam and Eve. Now if you're, the, some of the arguments are saying, well, that doesn't hold any weight because this is a certain genre of writing. This isn't meant to indicate anything. This is kind of a, a way of style of writing. You, you, you create these concentric ideas, so you talk about Adam, then talk about Eve, then the serpent, and then you reverse the order in Hebrew, and then you talk about the serpent, and then you talk about Eve, and then you talk about Adam. Now, that's an argument that's made here to try to suggest, well, Adam didn't have really any authority over Eve. Uh, That's just the way this is written. And I understand this turns into a long debate, but the, the question is, well, regardless of the genre, the question I want to know is, why did the Holy Spirit, who carries around the writers of Scripture, want Moses to use this particular form of writing at this particular? I think the Spirit of God could have an intention that Moses isn't aware of. But you have to decide that as you start walking through this particular text is what is he trying to do? Now, the per- one person who sort of poo-poos the idea that while well, Adam had some kind of authority over Eve gives three reasons. First, the man had first received the injunction not to eat. That's why God talks to Adam first. I said, wow, that, I, I look at that and I go, that's a pretty good argument for my side if I want to make it. I mean, if God gave the command to him and he did, as I suggested, that he does on-the-job training to prepare him so that when Eve comes along and she says, what are we supposed to be doing? He goes, here's what God's told me to do. And he directs and leads, it, whatever you, however you look at it. But the, but the idea here is that the argument is that, well, he was simply given the command first, so that's why God talks to him first. I would agree. I think there's a reason God's holding him responsible. 
I have already mentioned that I think it was Adam's responsibility to communicate the command to Eve because God brought her to him and he was responsible to explain here's what God's expectations are. Now, the other side of it is secondly, is this argument of this certain genre. And because it's a genre, the basic idea is it doesn't really mean anything other than that the Lord God is at the middle of it. Well, if it doesn't mean anything, why are you trying to make the point that the Lord God is at the middle of it? I think that's making a significant point when you're saying you can't make a point of all that. So I think you either have to be allowed to make points about why he does this, and I think there's a reason why God talks to Adam first, because God gave the command to him, he did on-the-job training, and he's saying, listen, I'm holding you first responsible on this. He then kind of walks through this process of dealing with first the serpent, then Eve, and then Adam. So let me just mention some things here, but the part that I want to get to is kind of at the end. This just sort of sets up the context. He condemns the sin and addresses the serpent. He actually doesn't say the serpent ever sinned. He doesn't even address what did you do. He just curses him. And he says you're going to be cursed above all the beasts. So all the beasts get sort of thrown into the same bucket because of the serpent. And then, and then God says, you're gonna have this humiliating existence, so he changes his mode of operation from something that we don't know about to slithering around on the ground. And, and most have suggested this is why most of us love snakes so much, is because of God's curse upon it and the enmity that he places between the serpent and Eve. Well, all you need is one person who says, I love snakes, I have them as my pet, and, you know, and then you're into the debate as whether it's really a curse or not. But the idea here is that he's, first of all, curses the snake, the serpent. Then he announces that there's going to be this enmity between his seed and the woman, or between the woman and him and her seed and his seed. And that's an interesting discussion that we won't have this morning. And then there's going to be this conflict where her seed will crush his head and he, his seed will bruise him on the heel, which, again, we're not going to have time to explore all the ramifications most interpret that fulfillment as being Christ's death on the cross and destroying the works of the devil. He goes from there to talk to the woman. And he says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. Now the debate in terms of equality gets kind of weird at this point, at least in terms of the material I read. The one argument is, is that um, and the statement that we deal with is that this is the first time traditionally that the idea of um, man's authority over women begins, and this is where pain and childbirth begin. That's kind of the statement. Uh, the, that's at least traditional understandings. Now, the word toil um, is not used other places to talk about pain. Um, there's, it's used twice here. It's used in terms of Eve in terms of childbearing, and then it's used with Adam in 17 when he talks about in toil you shall cultivate the ground or eat, eat, eat food. It's exactly the same word. So as you begin to look through this, the idea often means to be uh, anxiously laboring. And I don't mean that in the, the female giving birth thing, just it's, it's a struggle. There's this anxiety and this laborious sense of work. I would throw terms to it to the idea of, of worry gets thrown into it, the idea of even vanity, if you borrow it from Ecclesiastes, that you toil and toil and toil, and then there's this frustration of what does it really mean? What am I really accomplishing? Um, and there's a lot of different nuances to this. But the, but the interpretation that's often given as we tend to look at this is, is the idea of, 
that, well, Eve really wasn't going to experience pain in childbearing. That might be part of it. But the, the, the part of the condemnation for her is now that she's going to be required to toil with Adam because that was the word that she used in verse 17. It's not really about childbirth. She has to now require to labor with him and have children. And I'm really puzzled by that argument because I thought that they were able to have children beforehand and I thought the whole mission was to subdue the earth and exercise dominion. I, I assume that the argument is, well now she's required to do it, like she has to put up with the guy and all this stuff rather than it being part of a joyous partnership. As you begin to, to walk through this, the struggle becomes, is this a time when she gets demoted and now she has to live under the authority of man, or did it already exist in the garden, even though it isn't explicit? That becomes part of the challenge. Now, before I jump on that, let me notice what happens to the man. The ground is cursed because of Adam, and specifically because he listened to the voice of his wife, and secondly, he ate of the fruit of the tree. So we've already proposed to you that this isn't just, this might not even be a one-time conversation. She might have pestered him and kept promoting her ideas and what she had done, but she finally talks him in to eating of that fruit, and that's when everything falls apart. God says, in toil you shall eat of the, of the fruit of the ground all the days of your life. It will now, because it's cursed, bring forth thorns and thistles, and by the sweat of your face you will eat this. And I realize there are certain people who don't sweat, but most of us have this problem where we stink after doing any kind of work for any amount of time, male or female, so it's not a guy thing. But the point is, these all become reflections of the reality of God's judgment upon sin. So I want to back up to the condemnation that God levies on the woman, on Eve, and I've mentioned it already, but the idea here is that the woman was now required to both work with her husband and to bear children, perhaps now in additional pain. The problem with that is why wouldn't you reverse it? Well, if the word is used for both Adam and Eve, why doesn't Adam now, he's forced to have children with Eve and labor with her in terms of raising children or raising a family? The argument just doesn't make sense to me in terms of understanding what the text is saying. It's not meant to say they're now equal or condemned to different roles and responsibilities. The argument, frankly, just doesn't mean too much to me in terms of understanding this. But the ones that gets our attention as to whether there's real equality lost here or not comes in verse 16, where it says, your desire shall be for your husband, and, but, or but he shall rule over you. Now, that's a tricky text. Um, it's, it's, you notice that the judgment is on her first, that she, her desire is going to be for her husband, and our first thought would be, well, wouldn't that be in keeping with the idea that she's a helper created in, in the earlier chapters? Well, it would, except that there's another verse in chapter 4 that explains the nature of this, because it's the only other place these two words are used in combo in exactly the same way they're used here. So our thing would be, you know, if her desires for her husband, it's like, hey, can I make your favorite meal for Friday night? That's not what it means. It's not saying, hey, listen, I want to serve or do something for you to, for your birthday. That, that's not the idea that we're getting here. I mean, we might think that till we get to Genesis chapter 4, and God is talking to Cain. If you remember the story, Cain and Abel had made offerings. Abel's offering was accepted by God, and God did not regard Cain's offering. He rejected it. Undoubtedly, he didn't do it the way God wanted him to do it, or God would have accepted it. So he gets ticked, and he gets angry, 
And so God comes to them and says, uh, like, what's the deal? And so they go through this process, and God reminds Cain, he says, listen, if you do well, if you do it right, will you not be accepted? So Cain decided, I'm going to do it my own way. I don't care what God asks. He's going to have to just accept what I give him, and God says, no, it's not going to work. And then he makes this really interesting statement to Cain, and if you do not do well, if you don't do what's right, sin is crouching at the door, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So the idea of desire is clearly negative because God is saying, listen, the one sort of uh, animated element here that's trying to desire you is sin. Now, if you do well, you should do the right things, you're fine, but you need to know that sin now has entered the world and it's gonna crouch at your door, so to speak. You can metaphorically express it. It's gonna be right on your heart, it's gonna be on your mind, it's gonna be right there waiting for you to not do well and then you are susceptible to to sin desiring you in such a way that it'll take over. And so if I was putting this in our language, I would simply say that the idea of sin in that case, especially if we're gonna use this to understand uh, Eve's desire for her husband, is that sin is trying to control Cain. It's gonna try to influence and manipulate Cain so he gets them off doing what God says is right and doing either his own thing or what sin wants him to do. He doesn't have to turn him into a murderer, although, if you know the story, that's exactly what happened. He gets a really bitter heart, sin crouches at the door, and it takes over to such a point that he uses that bitterness and anger, and he kills his brother. So there's no limit to what sin can do in a person's life if its desire is for you, and it gets a hold of you. Most people who face addictions are, are because they've been in environments where they've been exposed to this and they've lost control. They, they don't know how to fight it and so they get dragged into sinful behavior that's very self-destructive and harms others. So the idea that God is saying here, I believe, is that in contrast to what was created, that she was supposed to be a helper to use all of her gifts and abilities to help keep Adam doing what's right in God's eyes, that now the danger is is that she's going to take a posture where I know what's best for you and I'm gonna try to convince you, to manipulate you, to influence you to do what I think is best rather than what God says is best. And, And I believe one of the universal realities, especially in marriage, is where wives are gonna say, listen, I know better than you do, And whether they say it or not, the temptation is, I'm gonna nag, I'm gonna influence, I'm gonna bug you, I'm gonna keep presenting arguments, I'm gonna keep bringing it up, I'm gonna do whatever I can to get you to do what I want because I know what's best here. Now I know that never happens to you. But that's the thing that Eve at least was facing. And I, I will, I will dare say she's moved from being a helper to now she's being, the danger is, she can still do well, but the danger is she can end up being a manipulator, frankly, a little bit like what Eve did to Adam to get him in this in the first place. I've studied, I've researched this, I know better than you, we need to do it this way, and if you love me, you're gonna do it that way. Or whatever other weapons or ideas happen to be part of the equation and the discussion. And so then the, the idea here then becomes, Uh, a warning 
Now, obviously the question is, is what kind of equality did this just destroy? Were they completely equal and this created something new or did this uh, just warp something that was different? Well, you'll notice in all of the judgments, if you read through the text, there really is very little that's created that's new. In fact, if you read Colossians, you would say everything that came into existence came into existence and nothing came into existence that wasn't already there. So I'm not sure the idea here is that God starts creating new things to show up like thorns and thistles. I think there are certain kinds of plants that just get corrupted and now they become our best friend uh, in our own home care center dealing with weeds. And, And what that tells me is that it's not so much there's something new created, but something becomes corrupted that already existed. Now, here's the questions that come to my mind. I I could not find a commentary that would address these questions. And maybe that's just because of the nature of it, but when we're dealing with equality, these are the things that come to my mind. Was there total equality, and that equality was corrupted? Well, that's a fair question. If equality was corrupted, which part? Was it their state of being? Are they no longer equal before God? I'm going to have a hard time with that one. I don't think that's what, because they both sinned, so they are both got brokenness. They're both messed up, so I don't think that changes anything. They were still created in God's image, but now that's marred, so now we're vulnerable to temptation and sin, so we, do, we act badly, not the way God created us. So then the question becomes, were their roles equal and, those roles, and were those roles corrupted? Because one of the argument is, if they had exactly the same role, Now have they been twisted so that now they have different roles, like Adam now has authority over his wife. Well, the only argument you can make that with is the great mission that God gave them to bear, to be fruitful, uh, multiply, subdue the earth. What happened to that mission? Well, it got corrupted, that one primary objective. That got corrupted because now we become more enamored with pursuing our own goals rather than God's mission. So that could have been affected. Were their roles different, and now are their roles corrupted? When God created Adam and did on-the-job training, did God have an expectation of Adam that when he brought Eve along, that, listen, I'm giving you as a helper, you obviously need to take care of her. The problem is there's nothing explicit. If we go to the New Testament, we would be tempted to say, God implicitly made him the head, he made Eve the helper, And so they had certain responsibilities to each other in addition to the big mission that God wanted to take. But because it's not explicit, people are saying, well, you can't find anywhere that there's a difference in their roles, although I think it's implicit clearly in some of the mission that God gives to them, but their overall responsibility to serve God and to be committed to his mission of being fruitful and subduing the earth and exercising dominion, that's, that's still for them. Was it just the person in the role that was corrupted, or was it the role itself? Now, that may sound funny. I'll try to illustrate why I say that in a minute. Were both the role and the person corrupted? Well, that's pretty hard. The only role we had to know for sure is when God said, she's your helper. So rather than being a helper to fulfill the mission of God, now she's become someone who's helping herself if she's vulnerable to sin crouching at the door and she, her desires for her husband, there's, all, there's a danger that she may manipulate him to do what she wants rather than what God wants. Were there distinct roles for both and now the roles have been corrupted and I forgot to finish the sentence in the last one so it's not important apparently. 
Now, let me go back and just reflect on a couple of things to think about equality. What did the fall change? Well, we know that Adam and Eve were equal in being in terms of how they were created. They had equal value, equal standing before God. That's never an issue with God. It might be an issue with us and how we think, but it's not an issue with God. The second thing is, are they equal in terms of God's mission? I think they are. They were said, you be fruitful, you multiply, subdue, and you're to do this together. But, the, but there's some aspects of it that are clearly they had different roles. The question is, it's hard to put a label to Adam's role without it sounding pejorative. If, you said, if we say, well, he's the leader, then all of a sudden that stinks of authority, and that's not the right thing. If you say he's the head and that she is the helper, then that sounds like you're already artificially creating his authority over her, and so that begs the question. But to me, if you say, well, they were equal in every single way, I think it's impossible to prove, because it's very clear that they, in the great mission God had them, they've had very distinct roles in fulfilling it. She's a helper. She compliments him and can do some things that he can't do. Having babies is probably the most obvious evidence that they have very different roles. But what do you call Adams? Well, let me suggest to you, was he a manager? Did God say, I want you to have management responsibilities over this, and I want you to use Eve as your helper to get it done? Or was he an implementer? Well, most people might be okay with that. If God gave it to him and you're supposed to implement this and Eve is to be your helper, well, well, that doesn't sound so bad. I mean, the problem is in most of our discussions, everything has become stereotyped. Well, if you say that he has authority, then all of a sudden, oh, that's patriarchy, that's obviously bad. Yeah. I don't think Adam and Eve, before they failed, thought any of their roles were bad until they decided to take matters into their own hands. Is he a director or persuader or prototyper? We know that God called Eve a helper. By the very nature of that, Adam had to be something. We're just not explicitly told. Now, let me remind you of, I think, an important thing. Someone wrote me an email and kind of said, you didn't mention anything about this. I think we're dealing with two extremely highly intelligent people. I mean, I think the fall has messed us up, so, you know, you, you hear these stories that, well, human beings probably use, what, 10, 12% of their brain, and if we could really have that opened up, we'd be all geniuses, and, and uh, then we just have really super smart ways to sin. I'm glad somebody laughed, anyway. It was, was kind of meant that way, anyway, but, but I think Adam and Eve were highly creative, high-thinking, intelligent human beings, probably smarter than than even the biggest brains that we think we got going around here in our world. And there's some pretty intelligent people. I mean, we don't have the technology we have, we don't have the space program we have, we don't have a lot of the, unless some pretty intelligent people have done things. And we didn't get that from eels and gophers. We got that from Adam and Eve. So the idea that Eve is a helper, I don't think in any way says, well, she's not as smart as Adam. I don't believe that for half a second. I think these are two super highly intelligent, creative, independent people with huge imaginations and creativity and industry. They'd, they'd make us look like children. And I don't think when Eve was told that you're Adam's helper that she would have taken that as an insult. But what happens when you talk about your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you? 
Well, I think there's some things that are said. Pre-fall, Eve's desire as a helper was to support, encourage, strengthen, and employ her amazing gifts to help carry out the mission of God. But after the fall, Eve's desire, the role, she's still a helper, but it gets, in a sense, has changed where now she tries to, if she's not doing well, tries to manipulate, maneuver, and influence him to do what she thinks is best. Now, I haven't talked a lot about the men, but the idea of rule is the same word for dominate. Now, we can knit-knack this to death if you want to. Um, it's interesting that the judgment on Eve comes first. Your desire, you're, gonna, you're, you're a catalyst in this, your desire is, to, is against your husband. Likes, if you don't do well, then sin will get a hold of it and you want to manipulate and influence him to do something that's not really what God wants him to do. But as a helper, you can be the greatest catalyst to empower him to do everything that God wants him to do and what you're both supposed to be doing. And so you have pre-fall, which is, hey, this is a great team. Post-fall, you have the corruption of the person. I'm not sure the roles have changed, but the person in the roles have been corrupted so that they function not the way God wanted them to have them. Now, if you're agreeable to that, then you would say, well, they had different roles and responsibilities before the fall, those responsibilities carry over, but now the people that are in the role is corrupted. It's not the role that's the problem. It's the people in the role. Now, I know this isn't going to answer all your questions, but what you have to do is, in your thinking about this, is decide, well, did they have total equality? Did they have total say? Did they have exactly the same roles and responsibilities before the fall? In every sense of the way, they had equal voice, every, all the rest of it. Or did they possibly were equal in every way and in the mission of God, but they had different roles and responsibility in fulfilling it, and they, God created her that way because Adam would never be able to fulfill that on his own. And I don't care if you're talking about subduing the earth or exercising dominion over the beasts, I think the same problem. Adam can maybe do some things by his own, but he can't do anything like what he can do if Eve is his helper in that process. Pre-fall, Adam's role, let's, for example, if we would designate it as a manager, was to guide, direct, strengthen, and bring his gifts to carry out God's missions together. Post-fall, Adam's reaction to Eve attempts, Eve's attempts to control or manipulate uh, is to rule over her so that they can stay on course with what God says is the right and well thing to do. Well, there's a lot we're not talking about this morning. But I hope if I just mess up your minds and get you thinking, that's a good start. So the question is, what does the fall actually mess up? Is it the people or is it create new roles? Because that's the accusation. Well, now that the man is ruling over here, that's patriarchy, and that's obviously bad. And so now she is implied subservient to him because now her desire is to try to manipulate and control. Well, I don't know if that, those roles were created after the fall, but certainly it corrupted the people so they're not going to function in those roles. And I think there's a difference. Let me explain it this way. When my uh, son was in middle school, I, like a lot of dads, became soccer coach. And so I'm going, well, no one will do it. You know, if you're a dad, you know how this works, right? 
You know, it might be your favorite sport or may not be your favorite sport, but no one's around to do it, so you kind of go, okay. <laughs> and it wasn't that I didn't know anything about soccer, but I had coached before, but I got in there and we were out on the field and one of the dads came by and he said, I'd love to help you coach. And I went, cool, that'd be great. So I was creating some drills and having the kids run through some things. And at the end of the practice, he comes over and he says, hey, listen, could we talk for a second? I said, sure. And he says, would you be open to trying something a little different? I said, well, what do you got in mind? He says, <laughs> he says, I've actually been trained all the way up through college level in terms of soccer, and I've got drills and all kinds of things I've learned. Would you be open to trying them? Yeah, well, what am I going to say? No. <laughs> well, depends how big your ego is, I guess. But I said, are you kidding? That would be fantastic. So he got these cones and they set up all these stations around the thing and we had the kids just clicking on everything. And I'm going like, wow, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. It's kind of like, I, and in my head I'm going, well, I know I shouldn't be the coach because this guy is way overtrained and way above my pay grade. There's no way. But you know what? He was amazing. He's like, no, I'm not trying to take your position away. You coach. I'm just trying to help. He made me the best coach in the world on the field because he was the best coach off the field. And I think we've lost a sense of this idea that in, in our culture, that everything in terms of equality means that everybody has to have exactly the same say, has to have exactly the same position, they have to have exactly the same thing. Some of the most powerful people in the world are people who sit in the second chair because they know how to empower other people so that the whole team looks fantastic. The problem is we've gotten into so much competition to prove our equality that we've never even gotten to begin accepting our equality. Now, this is just Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We haven't even got to the good stuff yet. But, but I want you to, to struggle with this a little bit in the sense of saying, listen, how do I think about equality? What did it look like and, and, and what does it look like? Because if I was Adam, I'd go like, man, Eve, you're absolutely a juggernaut when it comes to doing some of this stuff. You make me look good, and this is the best team I could ever pick in the world. And I think as we go through this journey, I, I will actually suggest to many of us, the reason why we struggle so much with the issue of equality is because we haven't started with our equality before God in Jesus Christ. I think one of the greatest enemies to most of our lives is the brokenness that we have to deal with, our own sin and shame, where we are running not only from God, but we're running from ourselves. We don't like ourselves, and we've spent our whole life trying to prove to ourselves and others that I'm worth something. And the only way that I can do that, I remember growing up, is the only way that I can even feel like I'm equal with everybody else is I have to be better than everybody else because that's the only way that I thought about being equal. The greatest enemy to the idea of equality is our own broken sinfulness. Because if God comes to us and says, listen, as a child of God who's been adopted into his family, you got nothing to prove because God has lavished his love upon you and the riches of his grace to say that every single one of us, regardless of our role in culture, in society, in the world, my sense of value as a person and significant is not defined by necessarily what I do. It's defined by who I am in Jesus 
And if we are children of God who've learned to welcome and accept God's love to set us free from the baggage and the clutter of how we define our own sense of value, it's the best, most excellent place to start in learning what equality really is. And if it doesn't start there, you're going to spend your whole life fighting to prove something and frankly, when it's not even necessary, at least for those who are children of God standing in the presence of Jesus. Do you really, do you, do you know this sense of being loved by God? Do you know that the role that he calls you to do might be different than somebody else around you? And that by no means, no matter what it is, makes you any less important or valuable than someone who might appear to be the real important person. We'll deal with that as we move into Galatians 3 next week, or, well, two weeks from now. But bow with me, if you will, and let's pray before we change gears. You know, Father, there's a lot of things to struggle with as we think about this sense of equality. I think that in the beginning, you created a paradise and a perfect environment for two individuals to begin to model the excellencies of your grace and your creative nature. Two highly intelligent, gifted, imaginative people who as they understood their roles and they worked together as a team, that there was really no end to the things that they could do in fulfilling your will. Father, there's nothing more dangerous in any team, whether it's a husband or wife or whether it's a ministry or whether it's a business or anything else, that if that team gets out of alignment and people start doing their own thing and start fronting their own agenda, there's nothing but disaster that can happen. Help us to continue to learn from your spirit and to Explore your word to understand the nuances of all that it means, and we just entrust ourselves to you as we think on these things in Christ's name. Amen.